chapter 5. James chapter 5 today, verse 13. There's so much going on in our world today that we have to pray for. We have to pray for our country. We have to pray for just our nation, our children. This election really is going to affect the next generation. It's really going to affect the next generation. And should God tarry and should He give us more time to repent and to come to Him, we must be a people that are standing for righteousness or truth because it's going to affect not only our religious freedoms and liberties, but also those of our children. My wife had the opportunity to go to a conference yesterday. She was invited, and she was telling me that the speaker was uh, a speaker that was teaching in regards to uh, children, in regards to family, and, and how our country is in a place where the family is being attacked. And it's very so true, the family is being attacked. And, and we see it even in the morals that are completely put to the side now that were biblical morals, that were spiritual morals at one point. She shared with me that the speaker had a conversation with a doctor that does the operations for the transgender now community that comes in. And, and it's so sad to hear this, but this doctor was saying that she does at least four operations a day. And these four operations, the average age, this is what really impacted me, that the average age of those coming in to do these operations are from 11 to 12 years old. And I asked myself, what is the church doing? Oftentimes we get very uncomfortable to talk about these things, but these are the things that we must be thinking about. Because how you vote this next election is really going to determine the things that are going to take place in our children's life. Is your son, your daughter, your nephews... Are they going to be able to have a country, a place, a church that still teaches the word of God? Because we're not being passive Christians like, like this is not my responsibility. This is our responsibility as a church. And we must take a hold of that responsibility and vote for truth and righteousness. Amen. So why don't we pray right now for our country? Why don't we pray right now for the state of our nation? And that we would also come... November the 2nd, to be able to pray Monday night, fast, if God leads you to fast that day, so that God gives us favor this election, and that God's hand is upon us, upon our president, and that we would stand for truth and for righteousness, for biblical truth. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you because your grace is still upon this nation right now, Lord. We see it right now. Your grace is with us, among us, Lord. But we are facing some very evil days. There has never been such a darker agenda that's been pushed on our nation than it is now. And we still, Lord, can see your hand of protection upon your church. But we ask, Lord, that we would be those that stand for truth. That we would be those that vote for righteousness. That we would stand in the gap. Lord, I pray that there would be no passive Christians in your church. That are swayed by emotions. In Jesus' name we pray and together we said. Amen. James chapter 5 verse 13. James 5 verse 13. The title of today's message is the power of prayer. <laughs> So awesome because today we get to talk about the power of prayer. Next week we have a special message with communion that you won't want to miss. But today we're talking about the power of prayer and why prayer is so important in the season that we're living in right now, church. Prayer is so important in the season that we're living in right now. Based off of the things that we just mentioned right now, prayer is so important. And James now has told us throughout this epistle, as we're going to end this epistle this morning, he's teaching us these very important lessons that he's learning and that the church ought to be learning and suffering now that would produce spiritual maturity. Now you notice that last week as we went through James chapter 5, that, that second half, that he talked about the power of endurance. What does the power of endurance do? It produces character and maturity in us as believers. But now he's talking about the power from the power of endurance to now the power of prayer. The power of prayer. 
And he's going to tell us here that, that the faith that is exhibited now or that demonstrates now perseverance always waits in prayer. You want to be a persevering Christian, a persevering man and woman that's enduring now? You're going to remain in a constant state of prayer. Prayer is going to be so important in your life. In fact, he's saying be patient in prayer. What are we doing as we wait as Christians? As we wait in patience, as we endure through suffering, as we endure through hardships, as we endure through troubles now, we ought to be praying. It was Charles Swindoll that said this, like a lamp without electricity, notice, the prayer-starved Christian fails to shine in a dark and desperate world. But show me a man or woman prevailing in prayer, and I'll show you a man or woman whose faith is deep. Are you like a lamp today without electricity that fails to shine in a dark world that we're living in today? But show me a man and woman that's prevailing and that is diligent and that is fervent in prayer. And I'll show you someone that has deep faith in God. You see, it's our responsibility that in every season of our lives, especially in those seasons that we're going through trouble, that we would run to God in prayer. Because in prayer is where you find counsel for every place that you find yourself in. That's where you find the counsel in prayer. And we're called here to care for one another in prayer. Notice in just these few verses that we're going to end, he mentions the word prayer eight times. And every time we read it, I encourage you to grab a pen and circle that in your Bible. Because God is calling our church, God is calling the church to pray. Now we're going to go through three major points when talking about James 5. Here from verse 13 to verse 20. And number one is praying for the suffering. We have to be praying for those that are going through hardships. Number two, praying for our nation. We're going to see that in today's text. And number three, praying for those that are straying. Oftentimes when we face challenges and suffering, in the year that we face today, there are many people that are backsliding and have turned away from God who once are following the Lord. We're going to pray for the straying, the backslidden. So let's here read James chapter 5, verse 13. Notice what he says, praying for the suffering. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray, notice here, if anyone is cheerful, let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of our Lord. And the prayer of faith here will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective and fervent prayer of the righteous man avails much. Now he starts off here giving us and teaching us what it looks like for those that are suffering. The word suffering is hardship. The word suffering, what it means, those that are going to troublesome or difficult circumstances. If any, is anyone here afflicted? <laughs> this is what he asks. If, is anyone here going through trouble? Is anyone going through trials or through very difficult circumstances? How, we, how are we to care for those that are going through trouble, affliction, anguish, or difficult circumstances? Well, he gives us here the remedy for the believer and for the Christian. And he says, is anyone among you through hardships? Let him call on the power of prayer. You see, oftentimes we resort to many other powers instead of the ultimate power, and that's the power of prayer. All of us here can agree that we are going through difficult circumstances in our life where we are afflicted. And the word here, suffering, is the same word that Paul uses when speaking to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, where he says, For which I suffer trouble, I'm afflicted now, in troubles now, as an evildoer, as if I were an evildoer, he says, even to the point of chains now. I'm detained now because of the faith. I'm troubled, I'm afflicted, but the word of God is not chained. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? That yes, as we're going through trials and through troubles, the word of God still has power and prayer still has power. So what is your response? What is our response right now? Is anyone afflicted? Let him, notice here, suffering, let him pray. God is calling you to pray now. That should be your response. That you should be busy praying. 
Oftentimes when we're going through troubles and we're going through trials, when we are afflicted, we have the tendency to complain. <laughs> we have the tendency now to, to gripe and we have the tendency to, to now go and gossip now because we're going through difficult situations. And it's so important that we don't complain or we don't judge one another as we're going through suffering simply because we don't know the motives of someone else and we don't know all the details. <laughs> so we must be slow to speak as he's already told us. But if you're going through affliction, refrain, stop yourself from complaining and go to praying. You see, the mature Christian, what he and she does is that they are prayerful in troubles of life. Are you prayerful in the troubles of life? Are you taking your needs to God? Let Him pray if you are afflicted. We're taking this need to the Lord. It is in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, that Paul tells the church this, Be anxious for nothing. Worry about nothing. But in everything, how? By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. You see that Paul tells the church of Philippi, a very small and poor church, that is also going through trials. He's saying, don't worry about anything. In fact, pray about everything. And here James is telling the church, you're going through affliction, but pray about everything. Thank God now that you can come to Him in prayer. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, Peter tells the church, also going through troubles and persecutions and tribulations, cast your cares upon Him because He cares for you. Go to prayer and cast your care upon the Lord. In other words, cast your care means to roll it over to God, to give it to God in prayer. And this is exactly what we are being encouraged and commanded to do. If you are afflicted, what are you to do? Go to prayer. It was a psalmist, David, in Psalms 27 that said this, I would have lost heart. I would have given up. I would have quit, Psalms 27 verse 13, unless I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, he says, be of good courage. Be encouraged now and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. What are you to do as you wait on the Lord? Pray. How's your prayer life today? You see, when you go to prayer to the Lord, when you are being afflicted, you know what you're doing? You're asking God for wisdom. You're asking God for wisdom. And you're asking God to allow you to learn to give Him the glory in this situation. Maybe it's unfair. Maybe you don't understand, but you're going to God in prayer. Lord, give me wisdom in this trial so that I can learn to give you the glory and learn the lesson that you have for me right now. If anyone is afflicted, let him pray. Now notice what he says here in the second half of verse 13. If anyone is cheerful, if anyone has a, a reason to praise now, or is, is now demonstrating joy now, notice what he says, let him sing psalms, or songs now here. Now, so if you're afflicted to pray, but also if you're cheerful or you're joyful, what is your response to be? Sing songs to God and to glorify God with those songs of praise now. So whether you have a need, go to God with it. Whether also you have joy, go to the Lord with that joy and to praise the Lord. Take it, the praise to God. Now hear what he says, Psalms, sing Psalms. He's talking about a public worship. He's talking about now a joyful heart of praise. In fact, this is an expression now, the Psalms, of an inner spiritual life. Psalms are coming out of my life. It's an inner spiritual life that now I am singing now because of the joy in my heart. But see, the Psalms now that he's talking about is another form of prayer now. The Psalms is another form of prayer. Now, why is this important for us to understand? That we are to go to the Lord when we are afflicted, and we are also to go to the Lord when we're cheerful. <laughs> Oftentimes, we go to the Lord only when we're afflicted. Have you noticed that? We're afflicted. We cry out to God. But when the Lord is doing amazing things in your life, are you singing psalms? Because those psalms are like incense of worship and of prayer that are going before the presence of God. So he's telling us here, in every season, whether you're afflicted or whether you're cheerful, go to the Lord. 
take it to the Lord now. Now notice here in verse 14. Is anyone among you now sick? Not only troubled or going through trials, but certain types of trials. And here when he's saying in verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Is anyone weak now or weak through this suffering? And it speaks of a weakness, not only a physical weakness, but also speaks of a spiritual weakness. Maybe discouraged. Maybe not walking with the Lord. Maybe your faith is, is shaking. And now he speaks of that type of weakness, but he also speaks of a, a physical weakness. And notice what happens here when they are in need, when it comes to a physical or a spiritual weakness. In verse 14, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray again over him, anointing him with the oil in the name of the Lord. Now this is an amazing commandment. And I want you to pay attention to this commandment, church. Because if you are weak physically or spiritually weak, what does it do here? What does James do? First and foremost, he assumes that the believer is plugged in the local church. <laughs> because it says, let him call to what? The elders of the church. He speaks of a church, of a gathering that has structure, that has elders, that has leadership, that has order. And he's assuming that every believer is plugged into the church. Notice, that's so important that we realize that. <laughs> You see, the faith that me and you are in, especially now when you consider the trials and tribulations that we're going to go through, the faith that we are in, it's a one another faith. It's not a faith that you are to walk and to live by on your own. So he's saying you should be going to church, number one, and if you are sick or suffering or weak, you find yourself in a weakness, let him call the elders of the church. Now, do you see that it puts the responsibility on the person that's going through the trial and through the suffering? And it says, I want you to take the initiative and to reach out to somebody. Now, it's, also, it's always beautiful when you get the church, that is, the leaders that are reaching out to the church and saying, well, I want to check on and see how you're doing. We want to pray for you. We want to be there for you. We want to make ourselves available to you. Here, but he's, here, he's exhorting us that if you have a need, that you should let someone else know. <laughs> How often have you been through a season in life where it's very difficult and you are weakened, you are sick, you are suffering maybe physically or spiritually or emotionally and you keep it to yourself? No, here he's saying, no, you ought to be plugged into the local church and you let someone else know that you're going through this so that they can minister to your needs in prayer. So someone can be praying for you. Right? Notice how it says this in verse 14. And let them, number one, pray for the needs. Why is it that you're reaching out to somebody when you're going through a, a, a certain struggle or a certain season, a certain trial? Because you're asking them to pray for you, to encourage you, to strengthen you, to support you in prayer. There's no greater support than the support that you get from your church when they pray for you. There is no greater support than the support that you get from your church when they're praying for you. And he's saying, go to the community of believers and, and, and ask them to pray for you. Number one, what is the church going to do when someone is weakened? Pray for them. But also to call the leaders of the church. Notice here. What are the leaders of the church commanded to do in this situation when someone is weakened? They are to now gather the anointing oil... And anoint that person in the name of the Lord. Now what is the anointing oil representative of in the name of the Lord? It is symbolic of something. If you've gone to maybe a prayer meeting or maybe you've gone to church and you're saying, I'm sick and, and I'd love to receive healing from the Lord. Maybe it's an emotional healing or it's a physical healing. And, and what do the leaders of the church ought to do? They ought to anoint a little dab of oil on you, which is representative of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Olive oil in the Bible is representative of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. So what do we do when we know someone's in need? We pray for them and then we invite the Holy Spirit to do the work. You see that? That's why we anoint with oil. Because we pray for one another and we invite one another to receive the anointing and that the Holy Spirit would come now and minister and do the work and heal. Not only that, though, also culturally, we see that the oil, if you read the parable of the Good Samaritan, and you start to look through Scripture, that oil was used medicinally. 
So when someone was bruised or battered through because of persecution here, James is saying, if someone is beat up because of persecution, literally, and they need to be strengthened, if, they, if their wounds need to be ministered to, apply the oil because it's medicine as well. Now, this is amazing that we get these three exhortations because he's first he's saying, I want you to pray. I want you to invite the Holy Spirit to minister to the person, but also get the best medical care that you possibly can now and invite them to do so as well you see what we're doing when we're praying for one another's needs we're waiting for the lord to answer because he's the one that answers prayers amen he answers the prayers and prayer can remove the affliction if it's god's will if it is god's will god can remove the affliction that someone is going through and we leave the results up to god this is so amazing that we're teaching this because we leave the results to God. But prayer can also notice this if it is not God's will at that particular moment to heal for his purpose and for his will. Prayer can also give you the grace you need. And the Holy Spirit through the anointing can give you the strength that you need to endure the infliction that you're going through. So that you can accomplish God's perfect will in your life. You see how you can transform now this trial into a triumph into a victory in the Lord. So he's saying, you know, believers, as you're going through difficulties, know that you can run to the church, let them pray for you, let them anoint you to welcome the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit and get the best medical attention that you possibly can. We're going to leave the results to the Lord because he's the one that heals. It's so interesting when you see now even people that want to get the attention when it comes to healing. You know it's the Lord's healing power and presence when all the attention is going to be given to the Lord. When it's not focused on man. Now notice what happens here in regards to the results that take place as the weakened, physically or spiritually, brother or sister, come to the church. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. Now this is awesome. It uses save the sick, not heal the sick. Save the sick because here he's going to give us a very spiritual meaning of healing. That's the number one healing that me and you both need. Our salvation, our spiritual healing. And the prayer of the faith, the prayer that is offered in faith, the prayer that is trusting in God will save or will make you well. This is a dual meaning of this verse. It's, it's beautiful because it ministers to both sides, the spiritual and the physical. I always like to ask someone when they come and they ask for prayer that maybe a back their back hurts or their knee hurts or something hurts. And, and I always like to say, do you believe that God can heal you? <laughs> because that's where it starts. In our faith, well, yeah, I believe that God can heal me if it's according to his will. Now he's saying this, as you pray, you're trusting in God. You're believing that God can minister to this need. You are believing that God can do this work, that it's the Lord that can do it. And the prayer of the faith, notice here, will save the sick, will make that person well. Now notice this, and the Lord, not the person, but the Lord here it says in verse 15, will raise him up, will raise him up physically, but also will raise that person up even emotionally or spiritually. The Lord does that. He raises that person up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, do you see how he adds that spiritual element as well there? Why, why is he going to be saved and forgiven? Because as we come, we pray for someone's restoration. We pray for someone as maybe they've been walking away from the Lord. And we lay hands on that person. And they believe that God can do a transforming work in their life. They believe that God can heal their heart. Guess what God does? He raises that person up. Eternally, he raises that person up. Physically, he can raise that person up. And if that person has come with, with some type of sin in their life that maybe needs to be forgiven, guess what happens? In that moment of confession, in that moment of humility, in that moment of restoration, God ministers to that spiritual need at the same time. You see how the Lord is so concerned and how prayer ministers to every need of your life? And if he has any sins, he will be forgiven now. He speaks also... In the Bible, we see that oftentimes the discipline of God comes to those that are living in disobedience. Oftentimes, that discipline can come in a form of health. 
You remember David in Psalms 32 where he was crying out to the Lord to heal him of the suffering that he was in. And it was to do with the hand of God of discipline on his life. It was to do with the disobedience on David's life. Now, it doesn't mean that always because someone is sick is that they're being disciplined by God. It does not mean that. But it means oftentimes the chastising, the discipline of God can come in such form. Therefore, he says, make things right with God. And God will restore and God will heal. But what, is, what kind of prayer is he referring to? The prayer of the faith. Now, I want you to realize this, that the prayer of the faith involves seeking God's will in prayer. That's the prayer of the faith. The prayer of the faith is not a name it and claim it. That is not the prayer of the faith. The prayer of the faith is saying, we're going to seek God's perfect will in prayer, and, and we should expect God to heal. We should expect God to answer, but we're leaving that matter up to Him. We know He hears us, but we're leaving that matter up to the Lord. Not unto ourselves, we're leaving up to the Lord. And we are going to submit now to how He answers our prayer. You know what's so beautiful about when you pray? In 1 John chapter 5, it says this, and this is the confidence that we have in Him. You can go to prayer in confidence. Maybe somebody is hurt. You can go to prayer. You can have full confidence that God can minister to this need. You see somebody that is backslidden. You can go to God in prayer and know that he can raise them up eternally on the last days and their sins can be forgiven. This is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything, how? According to his will. That's the key there. According to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have those petitions that we ask of him. He's saying here that, that you can go confidently to the Lord and ask according to His will. And because you know that He hears us, we have those petitions that we ask of Him. Oh, that's a, what a beautiful promise. But notice how you're going into prayer. You're asking according to whose will? According to God's will. You know who shows us how to pray that way? Jesus. Do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus was afflicted? As Jesus is praying for the sins of the world? What does Jesus say? Lord, not my will, but your will be done. And he's drawing strength there from prayer. How are we ought to pray? We ought to pray according to the will of God. And when we pray according to the will of God and we have desires that are found in the will of God, the Lord can answer those desires because they're from his will. And we ought to be so blessed and joyfully accept the answers that we receive because we're asking according to his will. Therefore, what, what that means is that if God says no, that's perfectly fine because we asked according to your will and we only want to stay in the center of God's will. Now notice how he goes on in verse 16. Confess your trespasses to one another. You see how we need one another to confess our trespasses? Confess your trespasses to one another, he says, and pray for one another that you may be healed. Again, speaking of a healing that may have taken place or a sickness that may be needed healing to do with sin. Right? Notice this. The effective and fervent prayer of the righteous man avails much. What are you, what are you doing when you're confessing to one another? Notice the word of one another. What you're doing when you're confessing to one another, what you're doing is saying, I'm repenting. And true repentance is, is followed or precedes now, I'm sorry, precedes confession. You want to see revival in your life? Go to the Lord in confession. And he's going to restore. Go to your brother that you have offended in confession. And that relationship is going to be restored. The powerful thing about confession, you know what the powerful thing about it is that it frees us and it breaks the power of secret sin. <laughs> That's what's beautiful about confession. It breaks the power of secret sin. And you know what it does? It also, it, it makes room, confession makes room for, for repentance. Confession makes room for prayer. Confession makes room for accountability. But confession is the first step to restoration. And that's where we want to be. We want to be restored now. And the reason why he says confess your sins to one another is because your sins also affect those people around you. <laughs> they don't only aff affect you, they affect other people around you. And you ought to go with one another and ask for forgiveness. 
Is there something that maybe you need to go and confess to someone so that you can ask for forgiveness? So that God can restore that relationship? So that there can be healing now that needs to take place? But also go to someone and say, you know what, I'm struggling with this. Can you pray for me? Because I need prayer. I want the Lord to restore me. I want the Lord to heal me. I want the Lord to come in my life and His power, His hand upon me. But I need to confess this so that now this no longer has power over me and I need accountability and I need prayer. You have to also be careful who you confess to though. (laughs) You can't just be confessing to everyone. Oftentimes the confessing to the wrong person can cause or be a form of stumbling instead of a form of strength in your life. So look for a believer that is strong or stronger than you are spiritually and say, I need this support. I need to confess this so that the Lord can restore me. There's a story of three men that got together and they said, you know what, we just want to pray. We want to spend time. We want revival in our lives. And we need to confess these sins that are taking place so that revival and awakening can take place in our life. And the first man said, you know what, I want you to pray for me. Because I struggle with lust and I can't keep my eyes on the right places and the right things. And every time that I look in one direction or another direction, I feel like I'm stumbling in my mind and in my heart. And I'm embarrassed and ashamed and I feel so guilty to say that I struggle with lust. And here the next man says, well, you know what, I'm... I'm relieved that you said that because I'm also embarrassed to say that I, I struggle with drinking and I get drunk and I'm an alcoholic and nobody at church knows this about me and I'm so just ashamed of these sins that are taking place and they confess and, and the third man says, well, I'm so relieved because I struggle with gossip and I can't wait to get out of here and tell everyone what you guys just told me. <laughs> you see how it's so important that you know who you confess to. But notice Proverbs chapter 28 verse 13 says this, He who covers his sins will prosper. Will not prosper. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Confesses them and forsakes them will have mercy. What is God calling us to do as a church? To confess. Confess our sins so there can be a pure church. And a pure church, a holy church, can affect a world that needs Jesus. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess, He is faithful, He will forgive us. Real, deep, genuine confession is, is such a feature in the life of the church historically when it comes to revivals and awakenings. Think about the last couple hundred years of church history, every time you saw an awakening and a revival anywhere, it had to do with the people of God coming and confessing. What does the Old Testament say? In Chronicles, if my people were called by my name, will come and repent and turn from their wicked ways, and I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins and heal their land. You know what that looks like? That looks like confession. We need to confess. So that there can be revival and renewal in our lives. In fact, in verse 16, it says here now, And the effective and fervent prayer of the righteous man avails much. You want healing? It comes from those that are coming to pray for one another. And it's an effective and it's a fervent prayer. What's an effective prayer look like? It looks fervent. (laughs) It looks fervent now. That's what an effective prayer looks like. It looks strong. That word fervent means strong now. A prayer is a supplication, a request now. It's strong, it's fervent, it's passionate. It is not a lukewarm prayer, cold prayer. Think about how many times we've offered God cold, lukewarm prayers in behalf of our families. And we expect God to answer those prayers? You come to the Lord with a lukewarm, cold prayer, and you expect Him to answer that prayer. No, He says, the effective prayer is the fervent prayer. The passionate prayer, the prayer that is strong, the prayer that is waiting in faith now. But it comes from a certain type of person, that type of prayer. Notice, of the righteous man. The only person that can pray a fervent prayer is that person that is walking with Jesus in holiness. 
The only person that can pray with power is a person that's, that is living in holiness now, that is praying according to God's will. And notice, it, it doesn't say you have to pray for a long time. Sometimes people say, well, if I yell and if I scream and I pray for an hour and a half yelling and screaming, then God's going to hear me. You know, oftentimes God hears just a few words that are so fervent and strong and from the heart. Do you see that here? Of the righteous person. Of the person that's living in holiness. Avails much. That word avails much is, has great power. Produces wonderful results. Because it's coming from a heart of holiness now. You cannot pray with power if you're praying in sin. You cannot pray with power if you're praying with sin. And, and this prayer is effective because it's fervent. Not because you're trying to convince God uh, uh, to do something. And God is so reluctant now. It's not, that's not why it ought to be fervent. Because you're gaining now God's heart, which is a fervent heart. And you're bringing the things before Him in that way. You're doing it according to the heart of God. See, the effective and fervent prayer, you know what it does? It, it comes to the Lord in faith. It comes to the Lord in submission. It comes to the Lord trusting God's timing. Trusting God's wisdom. Without reservation. And saying, Lord, here are my petitions now. Lord, I know that you will answer them the right way. <laughs> I know you'll answer them the right way. Oftentimes we think the Lord didn't answer our prayer, but he did. And the answer is no. <laughs> That's the answer. Or not now. <laughs> You see, when we go to it with an effective, fervent prayer, we are expecting God's ability, God's timing, God's wisdom, and trusting the answer to our prayer that it is the right answer because it's coming from God. Notice here in verse 17, as he speaks about praying, now number two, for the nation. Think about how when men and women prayed for their nation, what God did for the people and for the nation whose men and women prayed righteously as righteous men and women that were not living in sin, that were not tampering with sin, that were living in holiness, people that stood for righteousness, people that stood in the gap, and they prayed a fervent, strong prayer that availed much, that had so much power, filled with power. The Elijahs. Are there any Elijahs in the church today that are filled with power, that are righteous men and women that ought to pray? Now notice this. It says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. I want you to underline that because that's going to improve and encourage your life immediately. <laughs> now, Elijah, when we think about Elijah, we think about someone that is so foreign to us when it comes to godliness. Oh, my goodness, Elijah, a man with great power, a prophet, uh, the one that came with the voice of God. But notice, Elijah was a man with the same nature like you and me. What does that mean? The same human nature? Yes. But think about this. Elijah was a man of sin nature. <laughs> Elijah was a man with imperfections. Elijah was a man that was a sinner also, was inconsistent, was imperfect now, yet he was forgiven, he was equipped with gifts from above. And one thing he did, he maintained himself, hearing the voice of God and praying. He, pr he prayed earnestly, he prayed fervently, he prayed with commitment, he prayed with faith now. And this prayer that he made, had an emphasis now on waiting on the Lord and trusting in God. Now notice in verse 17 it says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly. See that word earnestly is another word, the original classical form in text Greek that, it, that reads, and he prayed with strong prayer. <laughs> Oftentimes in this culture when they wanted to emphasize something, they would repeat, they would use repetition. So it says, Elijah was a man just with sinful nature like ours, but he prayed with prayer. <laughs> he prayed with strong prayer. He prayed committed to his prayer, believing that God could answer his prayer. But what did he pray for? Notice this. He prayed that it would not rain. It did not rain on the land for three years and six months. For three and a half years, a man with sinful nature, he said, Lord, let it not pray. For three and a half years, there was no rain on the, in the land. And notice what it says here, and he prayed, circle this, again. <laughs> again. He prayed once, and he prayed again now, it says. And heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now this speaks to us of the account 
of 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18, when the nation of Israel had turned their back on God, were unfaithful, and they were giving themselves all unto gods of Baals. And these Baals were gods of now weather gods, or they were worshiping these gods or these idols now, where they trusted that they would give them good weather for their fruit and for their land. But here Elijah came, knowing the heart of God, for the nation of Israel, and he says, you trust and you put your back on the Lord to trust in idolatry, to trust in false worship. You know what Elijah says? I'm going to show you who God really is. And in 1 Kings chapter 7, he raises his hand, he prays, he says, there's no more rain. And for three and a half years, there wasn't rain. And the nation of Israel saw no matter what they did, who they turned to, it was God that was providing for them. Do you see why he prayed this way? Because he knew the heart of God, and this was the heart of God, to turn his people, to turn the nation of Israel back to him. He was praying for the nation of Israel because they had turned their back on God. And it says here that he prayed again now after those false prophets were exposed that Baal would not answer them after three and a half years. And he says, all right, move out of the way, <laughs> you false prophets. He set up the altar that was broken down, and he said he got on his knees, and he started to pray, and he told his servant, go out, because I hear the sound of abundant rain. <laughs> and his, his servant went out once, and he said, I don't see anything, Elijah. <laughs> he came back. And he keeps praying and praying and praying on his knees, and he says, go back out. I don't see anything. I hear the sound. And finally, he goes back a third time, and his servant says, I see a cloud the size of a, the hand of a man. Just think about it, a small little cloud. And he keeps praying, there's rain coming. What was Elijah doing? He was praying so that the people of the nation of Israel can see and can turn their heart back to God, who was their ultimate provider. Should we not be praying like that? Saying, Lord, if what you're doing in our country right now is to break our hearts and to break the heart of our country to know you again, to turn back to you, Lord, then we are going to pray that they turn back to you. What did Elijah do when he said that it would not rain for three and a half years and then it would rain again? He was turning the hearts of man back to God through prayer. He was using these things so that others can see the hand of God and that they would turn to him. You see, there's too many times where we fail to get those promises because we don't pray again. <laughs> we don't pray again. We're called to pray again now. That's our responsibility. Not only to pray again, but to pray again for our nation. To, to pray for our country. To pray for our leaders. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, what does Paul tell Timothy? That it is our responsibility by God. It says, therefore, I exert first, first of all that supplications, requests, and prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks that you should be grateful. This should be praying for be made for all men, but also for kings and all those that are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and reverence. Pray for those in authority so that you would have the liberty and godliness and in quietness to worship the Lord now. Pray for your leaders now. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Are you praying for your leaders? Let me ask you this. Are you praying for those that you don't agree with? Are you praying for those that maybe didn't say something that, that sat well with in your heart? Because that doesn't really matter. God's called you to pray. God has called you to pray for your leaders. God's called us to pray for our president. And he's saying here, Elijah, what did Elijah do? He prayed for the heart of the nation. We are called to do the same thing, to pray for our nation. That our nation would turn to who? The Lord. That our nation would turn to the Lord. But now... After praying for those that are in suffering, praying for our nation. Also, number three, praying for the strained, those that are backsliding. You see, the church in James, he was writing to a church that was going through many trials. And he's saying, let's pray for those that are straying. In verse 19, it says, brethren, if anyone among you wanders. You see, today, people are wandering. They're wandering because back in March... People became so fearful that they no longer wanted to go to church. They allowed the world to come into their minds and infiltrate what they were going to do and not do. And they started to wander when it came to their faith. In trials, that, things like that happened. That's just one example. 
But here what he's saying here, let them not wander, let them not backslide from the truth. Let them not drift away. You know what that word wander means? To drift. Have you ever noticed that when you drift, you don't notice you're drifting? Have you ever gone out to the beach? You go out and you're out there in the ocean, in the water, and you're enjoying a good time. And then when you look back, you find out, am I lost? You can't remember what happened. You drifted. (laughs) And you didn't even notice. You see, notice what he says here now, brethren. If anyone among you in the church apostatizes or wanders from what the truth, circle the truth. What is the truth? The word of God. If anybody wanders from the word of God, they gradually move away from the word of God. Gradually move away also from the will of God. You have to hold on to the word of God so that you would stay in the will of God. You see, unless a believer stays close to the truth, which is the word of God, unless you stay close to the truth, which is the word of God, unless you read the Bible every day, you will drift. And there are a lot of Christians today that are drifting because they're not holding on to the truth. And they find themselves backsliding. You know what a backsliding looks like? It looks like you're taking steps backwards or you're staying in the same place that you are and you're not growing or taking steps towards God. And there's not really anything such as a backsliding Christian. There's not. You either are a Christian or you're not. Maybe a brother was backslidden. Oh, that was a brother, but he backslid. He's out in the world now. And that's what he's saying here. If anybody wanders from the truth, they're leaving the truth. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, the apostle says, Therefore, we must give more earnest heed. You must give attention to the things that you're hearing right now from the truth, to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away. Are you drifting away right now? Have you become so casual? That now your walk with the Lord is lukewarm and you've drifted away. But someone, this is amazing here because it's an encouragement, and someone turns him back. What are, you, what are we to do as a church? Help those that are drifting away. Let's turn them back. God uses human instruments to turn other people back to him. God uses the church to minister to the erring brother, the wandering brother, the drifting sister, to draw them back into the fold, the sheepfold, back to the church now. Verse 20, notice what happens if someone does this, let him know. This is a beautiful work that God can do as he uses you to reach out to someone that has backslidden. Let him know that he who turns a sinner He who turns someone a sinner, notice that he calls the person a sinner now because he's living in sin, because he's turned his back on the Lord. Let him know that person that turns a sinner from error or from sin now of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Whoever brings a sinner back, you know what they're doing? They're saving a soul from death because sin leads to death And death leads to eternal damnation without Jesus. It's an eternal death. Backsliding leads to sin, and sin leads to death. That's what he's saying. So if someone is drifting away, they're going to sin, and their sin is going to keep them and lead them to death. We are rescuing him as Christians from that now eternal damnation. It says, what is your attitude towards the wandering brother, church? You see somebody wandering, are you criticizing that person? Are you gossiping about that person? Are you looking down upon that person? Are you in humility, in love, immersed by prayer, immersed by so much love, saying there's no way I need to reach out to that person. I'm going to patiently, willingly go and make myself available to bring that person back and rescue them now from death, eternal death. You know what this requires? It requires a lot of patience and it must be done in love. In 1, John, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, it says, And above all these things have fervent love for one another. For love, what does love do? It covers a multitude of sins. What, lo- what does love do for us? Love gives us a heart to minister to that person that is in need, spiritual need as well. Is there maybe a backslidden, wandering person in your life right now that God is speaking to you right now when you want to give up? You're just saying there's no hope for that person anymore. You're tired. 
of dealing with them. And he's saying, I can't do anything to help you. <laughs> well, you can pray for them, number one. But God's called us in love and in patience, in patience to know what the end result will be as we see that person restored. You rescue them from hell. You will rescue and save a soul from hell. In Proverbs chapter 11, verse 30, it says this, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. Are you winning souls today? Winning those that are maybe being snatched off and drifting away now, away from the truth? And he's saying here, those that are now winning souls, those are, are, are wise, and they're covering a multitude of the sins of them as they're introducing them and bringing them back to God's love and God's grace. You see, this is amazing because this book of James really teaches us so much in regards to restoring people. It teaches us so much in regards to a living faith. A living faith will do this. will be patient enough to see someone be restored. A living faith will be patient enough to see someone be restored. A living faith will also go in prayer for the nation. A living faith will also now, if someone is suffering or someone is weakened, will also go in prayer for them. You see, very quickly, I want to give you just a few points in regards to the book of James when it comes to a living faith. Because a living faith is going to have proof. It's going to have proof, evidence. You can't just say you're a believer. There has to be some evidence that backs up what you're saying. I want to ask you this. Number one, am I becoming more and more patient in the testings of my life? Do you find yourself more patient or do you find yourself anxious in the testings that are taking place in your life? The book of James teaches us to be patient. Let patience have its perfect work, right? Let patience have its perfect work. Number two, do I play with temptation or do I reject it and resist it from the start? Do you play around? Do you flirt with temptation? Because the living faith is not going to flirt or play with temptation, but resist it from the start. What happens when temptation comes into your life? Number three, do I find joy in obeying the word of God? Do you find joy in obeying what God says? Or do you just want to hear it, saying amen, I know that's true, give the nod, raise the hand, but walk out and nothing changes. A living faith not only hears, not only studies, not only reads, but does. We're not only going to be hearers, we want to be doers. We're going to have a faith that is a faith in action. A faith that responds in obedience. Have you been responding in obedience lately? Number four, do I make plans without considering the will of God? Are you making any plans right now without saying, if this is God's will, I'll do that? Or are your plans based off of your pleasures? See, James is exhorting the church through this epistle, make plans according to God's will. Make plans that please God, not that please you. And finally, do I naturally depend on prayer when I find myself in trouble? What do you depend on when you find yourself in trouble? Do you find in yourself in prayer or do you find yourself in something else? God is calling us as a church. And I love this because it's so timely that we're finishing this chapter at this time. God is calling us as a church to pray. To pray for the trouble that we see around us. The suffering, the affliction. And it's an urgent call to prayer as a church. So that we can see God's hand in our lives. Can we stand? Let's pray.